0: For a number of years now, since the summer of 2016, we've been preaching through the Psalms consecutively uh, throughout the summer months. Uh, we started with Psalm 1. Last summer, we reached, at the end of that summer, Psalm 63. And today, this first Sunday in June, in the year of our Lord 2023, we begin again with Psalm 64. As we've worked our way through the Psalms these past um, seven years or so, one of the convictions that has grown ever deeper for me, as I've studied and prayed and prepped and preached, is that there is no subset of the Psalter that can be rightly termed Messianic Psalms. If by that term we mean that there are some limited number of Psalms in the Psalter that are about Jesus and others that aren't. Yes, of course, psalms like Psalm 2, 16, uh, 110, etc., they are quoted and used by the apostles in important ways in the New Testament to unpack and explain the identity and work of the Christ. But still, the reality remains that properly understood through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection, every single psalm is a psalm about Jesus. What I mean is that Jesus is the center of the scriptures, and Jesus is himself the primary speaker in each of the Psalms, every one. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, eternally begotten, is the true author and writer of the Psalms. He is the psalmist par excellence. Jesus is the subject of the Psalms. That is, Jesus is the one about, who, or the one whom the Psalms are about, and Jesus is also the practitioner of the Psalms. He is the one who prays the Psalms, as well. Now, Jesus prayed the Psalms, of course, in his earthly life, in his incarnation. As modern-day evangelicals, we primarily think often of prayer as a sort of informal conversation between us and God, but for a first-century Jew, prayer meant the Psalms. To pray to God, by definition for Jesus, meant praying the Psalms. That's what prayer was. When the Gospels record, as they often do, that Jesus went off by himself to pray, we can be sure that the practice he was most fundamentally engaging in was praying out loud the Psalms to his father. Jesus had the Psalms memorized during his earthly life clearly. He learned them in such a manner. He quotes from the Psalter more frequently than from any other Old Testament book in his teaching During his life, it is on his lips constantly. And while he dies on the cross at the time of his most intense suffering, Jesus brings those psalms to mind. He prays the psalms as he dies, as attested to by the gospel writers, who tell us specifically that Jesus quotes and speaks from Psalm 22 and Psalm 31 bookends during those three hours on the cross. And of course, now as he lives forever at the right hand of God in his glorified and risen body, Jesus, God's Son, continues the work that he practiced on earth. He continues to pray the Psalms as he intercedes for us. And when Jesus prays the Psalms. He doesn't just pray that that small subset that biblical scholars have termed messianic psalms. No, Jesus prays all of the Psalter. All 150 psalms are on his lips. Jesus prays, make no mistake, to his Father, the imprecatory psalms. He prays the psalms of lament. He prays the psalms of praise. He prays the psalms of judgment. All of these are his prayers, for all the psalms are about him. And seeing the psalms as the prayers of Jesus are, I believe, the great secret that will allow us to pray the psalms boldly as well. This is, I think, the secret to praying the Psalter, seeing them as the prayers of Jesus first and foremost. The Psalms, as you read them, if you've done that, if you've gone through, uh, not just the familiar ones, but the nooks and crannies of the Psalter, you'll find that the Psalms contain all kinds of wild and brazen prayers. Prayers that don't come naturally to our lips. For example, the psalmist is constantly pleading with God on the basis of his own righteousness and innocence and blamelessness. Again and again. He appeals to these things. The psalmist also is very frequently, confidently, without disclaimer, petitioning God to judge the wicked in terrible ways. The psalmist is often declaring his faith and confidence in God's victory in ways that we struggle to affirm ourselves, for our faith is not as strong as his But these kinds of prayers that we find in the Psalter actually prove that we need Jesus in order to pray them, if we are going to pray them at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian of the 20th century, in my opinion, perhaps the most brilliant theologian of the 20th century, puts it this way. He says, the Psalms that will not cross our lips as prayers, those Psalms that make us falter and offend us, actually make us suspect that here someone else is praying. That the one who here in this psalm is affirming his innocence, who is calling for God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depths of suffering, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus who is praying here, Bonhoeffer says. And not only here, but in the whole psalter. The psalter is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the psalter in his earthly life, and now it has become his prayer book for all time. Jesus prays the Psalms even now. Even this very moment. And it is as we pray the Psalms with Jesus, not on our own, that we learn to pray them at all. You see, we are, by the Spirit, united to Christ. And so we pray the Psalms as well, but not on our own, not by our own merits, but in union with our risen Lord and Savior. As Bonhoeffer goes on to explain, he says, Christ is praying the Psalms, and here's how he says he, do- he does it. Christ is praying the Psalms through the mouth of his congregation. The congregation prays the Psalms too. Even the individual prays them. But they pray only so far as Christ prays with them. You see, friends, the Psalms are the prayers of Jesus. And because they are the prayers of Jesus, they are our prayers as well, as those who are united to our risen Christ, to our prophet, king, and priest, the one who lives forever, to intercede for us. You never pray the Psalms alone. You pray them with your Lord, always. And so as we move through the Psalms this summer, we'll be asking this question again and again. What does this Psalm teach us about Jesus? What does this psalm show us about Jesus' life, about Jesus' desires, Jesus' intentions, the kinds of things that Jesus prays for and wants to see affected in the world? And what does it mean to pray this psalm with Jesus as he prays it to his Father? With that in mind, let's turn now our attention to Psalm 64, which is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to follow it along there. Beloved, this is God's holy and inerrant word. It is more precious than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. Psalm 64. To the choirmaster, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares, secretly thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart Of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin. With their own tongues turned against them, all who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about. And ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. And take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Thus far the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. O oh, blessed Lord, you have caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Now by your Spirit, grant us the grace that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might ever more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This psalm, Psalm 64 is, like all the Psalter, a prayer of Jesus Christ. It is a prayer that he prayed certainly during his life on earth. It is a prayer that he prays now at his Father's right hand in heaven. When we pray this psalm, we pray it in union with Christ, the one who speaks it on our behalf. And indeed, it is not difficult to imagine. How Jesus prayed this psalm during his incarnation on earth, during his life on earth. Though Psalm 64 was written originally by David some 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus, it speaks prophetically of our Lord's experience. You see, in verses 2 to 6, the psalmist is entreating the Lord to hide him from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers and these wicked as you read what the psalmist says they don't fight in a straightforward way they don't favor a frontal attack rather they are devious and secretive they sharpen their tongues like swords the psalmist says which is a striking image of malice the psalmist says that these wicked people aim their bitter words like arrows, that they set traps and seek to ambush the innocent and blameless. These wicked are shameless. They secretly plot against the righteous and innocent one and think that no one can see them doing it. In fact, they have done a search for injustice and they have determined that they themselves are righteous, even as they seek, ironically, To kill and destroy. If you are familiar with the story of the Gospels, you'll know who these people are. In Mark 3, the Gospel text we heard this morning, Jesus has barely begun his ministry. The first two chapters of Mark have recorded things like Jesus' initial preaching ministry, several of his healings, his ministry of exorcism, and his practice of eating with tax collectors and sinners. But already by Mark 3, Jesus has drawn the attention of the leaders of Israel by claiming to possess in himself the authority to forgive the sins of men. An authority which he subsequently verified by telling a paralyzed man to get up off of his mat and walk. And he did Now at the end of Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3, Jesus is beginning to confront the Pharisees about their false and corrupt requirements regarding the Sabbath day. He has proclaimed himself as the Son of Man, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And now he is demonstrating what that means. He intends to purify the Sabbath and return it to its original intent in the law that he himself gave. To Moses. A man with a withered hand comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as Jesus is teaching, as he often did, and Jesus asks the Pharisees in public this question He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And they're silent. Jesus then tells the man to stretch out his hand, and he makes him well. The story this then concludes with this striking verse. And the Pharisees went out and immediately, that is, on that very same Sabbath day, immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. I mean, do you see what happens in that little story in Mark 3? Jesus heals a man in the Sabbath, and the response of the Pharisees is to use the remainder of that Sabbath day to enter into a conspiracy to murder him. Right? They went to church in the morning, and in the afternoon they had a secretive meeting to describe and and plan how to kill someone. It was a good question that Jesus asked. Is it lawful on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? It was a pointed question. The rest of the Gospels then record the outworking of this conspiracy that is initiated by the Pharisees, who were, by the way, no friends of the Herodians until this moment. For three years they seek to kill Jesus until finally in his crucifixion they succeed. And it is with this context in mind that we can see how this psalm speaks of Jesus' own experience. Hide me, Jesus, the psalmist paroxelant says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. But this psalm is not only about the psalmist asking God to protect him from evil men. It's also about the psalmist confidently proclaiming God's triumph over evil. Indeed, over those same evil workers that he is asking for help from. In verses 7 to 10, there's this dramatic turn in the psalm. The psalmist moves from complaint To proclamation of victory. And here the psalmist speaks prophetically about Jesus' destruction of evil. And his resurrection from the dead. The psalmist says, but God shoots his arrows at them. That is the wicked. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin. With their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one, the psalmist says, rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Do you see what's happening here? Those who plotted in secret, those who sharpened their tongues like swords, those who ambushed the blameless are now themselves suddenly defeated and put to shame. For God has arisen and he has shot his arrows at them. And indeed, this is just what our Lord accomplished in his resurrection. On the third day, the father turned the tables on the wicked by raising his son from the dead and brought about the defeat not only of those who murdered his son, but indeed the defeat of evil at large. And now in his ascension, this psalm has been completely fulfilled. For Jesus has indeed become the one whom verse 10 speaks of. He is the righteous one who even now is rejoicing in the Lord. And speaking of his refuge in him. First and foremost, this psalm, like all the psalms, is about Jesus. He prayed it during his earthly life when he trusted his father to deliver him from the schemes of his enemies. And he prays it now as he entreats his father to protect his church on earth from those who would destroy it. But we also pray this psalm. We pray it with Jesus. It is for us as well. And as we pray this psalm, Psalm 64, we learn something interesting, I think, that this psalm teaches us about fear. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 1, the psalmist entreats the Lord and he says, Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Isn't that interesting? The psalmist here doesn't simply pray, as we might expect him to, for protection from his enemies. No, he is asking God to preserve his life from dread of the enemy. In other words, the psalmist is coming to God honestly. He's asking him to protect him from being afraid. Of those who would seek to destroy him. He's asking God to preserve him. Most primarily not just from death and destruction. But actually preserve him from dread and fear. And beloved this is a prayer that we need. Is it not? So often we are afraid. And understandably so. For this world is a fearful place. And fear is something that we're meant to bring to God and ask Him to preserve us from. To preserve us not only from the thing that is causing us the fear, but from the power of fear itself. We're afraid of sickness and suffering and death. And that's understandable because those things are horrible. And all of us will experience them one day. We're afraid of the plots of wicked men. And that makes sense because the world is full of people who are evil and wicked and malicious. We're afraid of ourselves, if we're honest. Of our own capacity for our sin and self-destruction, unwise decisions. And, And this makes sense as well, for our hearts are mysterious even to ourselves. But in the midst of all these things... Beloved, your Lord Jesus Christ in His grace and mercy has given you, has written for you, a prayer for you to pray. You can memorize this prayer, right? It's short. He invites you to pray these words with Him to say, Father, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Father, preserve my life. From dread of the enemy. That's a prayer given to you to pray. Not just preserve my life from evil, but preserve my life from the fear of evil. It's fascinating that Jesus himself prayed these words. That's worth thinking about, I think. In his incarnation, of course, Jesus exposed himself to all of our frailty and weakness, including a vulnerability to fear. But one of the strongest impressions that emerges from the Gospels when you read them is that Jesus is a man who is unafraid. Right? Jesus there in Mark 3 healed that man in the synagogue knowing that it would mean the Pharisees would do what they did, would conspire to destroy him. That's why he asks the question he does. But he does not hesitate in moving forward. And later, when Jesus is on trial for his life, not theoretically, but actually, what is most striking is his lack of fear and response to the taunts and threats of the leaders of Israel, the soldiers of Rome, and Pilate, the governor. Do you not know, Pilate says, as Jesus stands before him in chains, after having been flogged and beaten. Do you not know, Pilate says, that I have authority to crucify you, authority to publicly torture you to death? And Jesus simply says, you would have no authority at all over me if it had not been given you from above. This is a man, beloved, who is not afraid. This is a man who did not fear because he had learned to rely on his father for strength. Now, don't miss that. Jesus wasn't not, I mean, Jesus was not afraid, not because he was some like Superman, right? He was impervious to fear who didn't share in everything we share in. No, he was not afraid because he had prayed and learned over his life through suffering to rely on his father for strength. He was a man who had prayed many times before and perhaps even in that moment was praying silently again, Father, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. It is worth remembering that when the apostle to the Hebrews reflected on the work that the Christ came to accomplish, he emphasized that one of the most fundamental things that Jesus did was deliver us from enslavement to fear. Right? We heard that in our, in our epistle reading this morning. In the second chapter of Hebrews, the apostle writes and says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things. He was made like us. And why? That through death, that through going into the dark tunnel, the shadow, the valley, into the unknown. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And... Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's how the Apostle describes the power of death before the death and resurrection of Jesus. That the fear of death subjected everyone to lifelong slavery. And indeed, as the apostle rightly understands, fear, and particularly fear of death, is a kind of slavery. Fear is a dominant, compulsive force. It drives us to all kinds of destructiveness toward ourselves and toward others when we're under its spell. But what is offered to us, beloved, through our Lord Jesus Christ, is freedom from that slavery. And we enter into that freedom when we pray with Jesus and say, Father, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Because in Jesus, that prayer is actually answered. He's not only the one who prays the prayer, he's one that brings about its fulfillment. For by sharing our flesh and blood, by going into that dark shadow of death, Jesus has indeed destroyed the one. Who held death's power. And he has set us free from the slavery of fear. And do you know what? Instead of fear, Jesus offers us joy. It's the opposite of fear. Joy. He invites us to enter in to what he has done, what he has won, what he has accomplished Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord, Jesus Christ says at the end of Psalm 64. And take refuge in Him. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Your Lord Jesus Christ says those words to you, beloved. They're an invitation to step in to what he has done, what he has accomplished, what he experiences even now. For it is as we take refuge in the death and resurrection of our Lord that we will know what it means for our lives to be preserved from fear. Preserved from the dread of the enemy. Preserved even from the dread of enemy of death itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we abide with him. May we rejoice in him. May we not be afraid. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.